0: Welcome to the Old Time Radio Superman Show. I am still not your host, Adam Graham. Yeah, this is Blaine Dowler back for one more entry. Why? Basically because I messed up. So as I'm sure a few of you noticed, when I first started guest hosting, I got some of the episode numbers wrong. And that's because when Adam invited me to do this, I looked online and the first serial I was supposed to take over used a different numbering convention than most other serials. The first part of this episode contain the end of the previous story and the start of the next one. And usually that's considered part of the previous story. So I just assumed that it was the numbering wrong from my source and dove into the first complete part of that story. Well, I was wrong. So that meant going back and doing some edits and putting the missing episode back in my first episode, which is why we started off with the double length episode. It also meant having one less episode. So instead of having Just one week between my last episode and Adam's first, we ended up with a week and a half. It's a little bit longer than I wanted to do it. I don't know if Adam would have been okay with that or not. I basically volunteered to throw in this bonus episode. So this week, you're not actually going to hear anything from the radio show. Instead, I'm going to go through what parts of the Superman mythos came from the radio show, what parts fed into the radio show, and the impact that this radio show had on the character as a whole. In his now seventy-five years of existence, or actually just past the seventy-six year mark, Superman first appeared in comics in nineteen thirty-eight in Action Comics number one, cover dated June nineteen thirty-eight. The on-sale date was actually May third of that year. Now, a lot of what we know from the character at that time carried through into the radio show, and not all of it did. Some of it came from other sources, whether it was the Fleischer Studios cartoons or this radio show. So, in the source material. Clark Kent and Lois Lane, for example, worked for the Daily Star under editor George Taylor. Now, as the radio show was coming up in production and as the cartoons were going, they found out that they weren't going to be doing that. Instead, they're going to have Perry White and Jimmy Olsen. And those characters and the Daily Planet started in this radio show. So the way the comics handled it would have been pretty subtle if you were going through it the way you were expected to at the time. Meaning, you pick up this month's issue of Action, you pick up this season's or this bi monthly issue of Superman, you read them, you set them aside, and you don't really go back and reread them. They weren't expecting comics to be as long lived as they have turned out to be. So the comics just spent a couple of years never mentioning the name of the paper or their editor. And then after a while, just started calling it The Daily Planet and started calling it Perry White instead of calling him George Taylor and The Daily Star just to acclimate the readers. So new readers would never have known there was a change, and they're hoping the old readers would have forgotten. As I said, that works if you're reading it in the original format. If you're reading it as most people are reading those first issues today, in either the Chronicles or the hardcover archives formats, it does stand out. Because at the time, the stories were typically shorter, and it doesn't take as much to go from one month to the next. We'll get into that a little bit more later. Jimmy Olsen didn't really exist in the comics at all. He was a creation of the radio show that was aiming specifically at the child market. Now, there was a younger character in the comics. He didn't have a name. He didn't have a voice. He just ran around in the background. He never spoke for years. In fact, the Fleischer cartoons made him into a character named Lewis, just as a joke to play off Lois and, oh, Clark, you weren't talking to Lois. You were talking to Lewis and whatnot when Lois snuck away from Clark and he turned around and saw that Lewis was there instead. And he's the young guy with the red hair and the bow tie. If you go back to the early episodes of the radio show that created Jimmy, he's actually described as blonde, and that's part of the description that Clark gives the police in one of his kidnappings. The comics did eventually decide to use the red-haired boy as Jimmy in the series, and then more recent episodes of the radio show that we've been hearing do refer to him as a red-haired character. So there's some feedback going back and forth between the two sources here. Jimmy was first created for the radio show, but his physical appearance was basically rewritten to be consistent with the comics. Which makes sense. There's a much greater likelihood that the people listening to the radio show are looking at today's comics and picture Jimmy as red hair than remembering that one line of dialogue from years before that said he was blonde by the time they referred to him as red on the show. Now, the original comic Superman's power set wasn't as developed. It's more like what we have here on the radio, where he's got the strength, the high durability or close to invulnerability, he's got the x-ray vision, Originally, he couldn't fly in the comics. That's something he's been doing from the start in the radio show, so that was the first place audiences saw it. It was actually produced first for the Fleischer cartoons. When they were doing the animation, they realized that just leaping from building to building looked fairly lame, and because of the production scales, they were able to correct that and get permission to make Superman fly in the cartoons, so the radio show people knew that was coming, and that's why Superman has been flying on the radio pretty much from the start. Now, unfortunately, the Fleischer Studios only produced nine cartoons as Fleischer's innate is famous due to Paramount's hostile takeover of the company. I highly recommend reading Out of the Inkwell by Richard Fleischer, son of Max and Dave Fleischer, to get that story. It's a great book, and there's a lot to that story that's not terribly relevant to the radio show. What we do know from the radio show are a lot of his catchphrases. For example, up, up, and away. It's very closely associated with Superman. It shows up in a lot of media. It's even been criticized lately saying, well, why is he announcing it? Well, he's announcing it because radio is a purely auditory medium, and that's where it began. It was back in the radio days when he had to say up, up, and away as a cue to the audience that Superman is now flying. The opening slogans, the faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, that was first written and recorded for the radio show as well. It was incorporated into the cartoons because of their production schedule, so there was a little bit of feedback going on with the flight and with that intro, but that was first written for this as well. One of the other major things that came out early on with Superman was his adoption. If you go back to Action Comics number one, they'll say that Superman was raised in an orphanage after his crashed rocket was found by a passing motorist and the baby was just dropped off. And all of the orphanage staff knew about baby Clark Kent's incredible abilities. Makes it a little bit difficult to explain why the world never figured out his secret identity. That was revised a little bit in Superman number one, where they named the passing motorists as the Kents. His mother's name, Mary, his father has no name at that point. And even then, they didn't really adopt him so much as periodically check in on him. It was the radio show that really fixed a lot of the story logic issues with this. So the radio show actually had two different origins for Superman, one of which we've been able to hear because that one was preserved. That goes right back to the beginning. That was the pre-war era on the original network. And in that one, Superman arrives on Earth as a fully grown adult, and he encounters two people. And these two people are quite happy to explain the way things work, they help him pick out a name, and he sort of establishes with them, yeah, this is, I'm going to be Clark Kent. Thankfully, those two were noble citizens who respected the vow of secrecy, so we didn't hear from them. Unlike the TV show, he didn't just drop them off at the precarious peak of a mountain and fly away and watch them die and laugh about it. So later on, the series dropped off its original network and came back to the air during wartime. And as Adam has said in detail before, during wartime, the records that they were using to try and retain the shows were stored on glass instead of aluminum. The aluminum was being used for the the air support in World War II, and the glass records, as we would sort of expect, simply didn't have the durability to last to these days. So that original story is lost, although we do know enough details about it. To know that in that one, Clark was adopted very early by Eben and Sarah Kent, and then they raised him from that point on. So they were really the only ones who knew about his special abilities, and because they were treating him as their son, because he was in all but the biological sense of the term, they had no problems keeping his secret, which is a big part of the story logic that needed to be closed. The names even in Sarah would be the n- names that were used later by the George Reeves TV series. So the characters weren't actually named Jonathan Martha Kent until 1950, in Jonathan's case, and 1951, in Martha's case, in the comics themselves. So the original names of Eben and Sarah, that came from the radio show. So the radio show was the first to name Clark's father as Eben, short for Ebenezer. Given how popular A Christmas Carol has become, I understand why DC didn't want to use that name when they had the choice to use the names that were established from other media or go their own way. Next up, we're getting to one of the big introductions from the radio show. Unfortunately, it's also from the Lost Era. There's not enough of the serial left for Adam to include it to really make it shine. In June of 1943, they ran a serial called The Meteor from Krypton that introduced Kryptonite for the first time ever. And this wasn't done for the sake of story so much as for the sake of the voice actor. Bud Collier wanted to take vacations, and he had every right to, but the show was popular enough that they didn't want to send it into reruns. So that's where they came up with the idea of kryptonite, the leftover materials from his home planet of Krypton, and when he was exposed to them, it would weaken Superman. So for the duration of Bud Collier's vacation, Bud Collier didn't actually record Superman. They had somebody else in the studio moaning into the microphone, while Superman's friends and co-workers were the ones who actually went out and solved the mystery and saved him from the Kryptonite and so forth. Kryptonite wouldn't make its first appearance in the comics until Superman issue 61, cover dated November 1949, which is quite a ways down the road. We also have a different origin of Superman's powers in the comics today than what we had on the radio program. Now, the radio was very consistent with Action Comics number 1, which is the one that establishes that Superman's powers are available to all Kryptonians, even while they're on the planet Krypton. In fact, in the radio show, Krypton was at what we call one of the Lagrange points, so opposite to the sun in the same orbit as Earth. The comics say that his society had just evolved to physical perfection, so they had mastered essentially the art of working out, so they were all very physically fit. And their muscles were just so dense from all this exercise, that's why they were such incredible athletes, that's why they could take bullet hits, and all of that. We didn't actually see the turnaround that Superman was special getting his powers from the radiation of a yellow sun, and that Kryptonians didn't have these abilities naturally, until Superman issue 146, which was cover date July 1961. The cheapest legal way to get that is in Showcase Presents Superman Volume 3, which is you know, an interesting little thing, but that's also why when we go back to the disappearance of Clark Kent, which ran episodes 639 to 650 of Adam's show, we heard the comments that Superman was struggling to get by the sun instead of empowered by the sun. That simply wasn't part of his canon yet. That wasn't part of the story. So just like a few episodes ago, we had differences in the Lane's family. It's not that the radio show wasn't keeping up with the comics, it's that the comics were contradicting episodes of the radio show that had already aired, and as the source material, they have that right. Now, one of the biggest ones as far as the DC Universe as a whole is concerned, and one of the major things that really has become pervasive through all the subsequent appearances of the character, is the fact that Batman and Superman know each other and work as a team. The first time they met in the comics was in Superman number 76, which was the May-June 1952 issue, and went on sale March 7th, 1952. That was a one-off story, with the two of them sharing a cabin in a cruise liner just by sheer coincidence. And things start to go down, they realize there's problems, they get bathed in complete darkness, they decide, well, they're going to change into their costumes. And then something floats by with lights, they see each other and they realize, oh, you're Superman and I'm Batman, and vice versa, and they immediately team up. The regular team-ups didn't start until an issue of World's Finest. That's issue 71 from 1954. And that was mostly a cost-cutting idea. Back when Action Comics number 1 was first published, comics were 10 cents each, and they were 64 pages with virtually no ads. Usually the stories lasted 16 pages each, so it'd be four stories in a 64-page book, The last third or quarter of the last page of each story would have an ad, and that's all the ad space they'd have in the entire book. Most of the ads were on the inside covers, assuming those weren't being used for a table of contents. As we got through the war and pushed on later and later, production prices went up. The comics industry as a whole decided that rather than raise the cover price, they would cut down the page count and try and maintain a balance that way. So these 64-page comics dropped to 48-page comics. Now, in this time, comics were produced almost like a work-for-hire, very much like a work-for-hire, but in studios. So, the Siegel and Schuster studio would produce Superman stories, and Bob Kane's studio would produce Batman stories, even though Siegel and Schuster had a lot more input in Superman than Bob Kane had in Batman, despite his claims to the contrary. So there would be almost no interaction between the studios, and DC wasn't DC yet, it was a combination of National and All-American comics. Those companies would just take the stories and put them within the single cover, which meant that there wasn't a lot of opportunity for stories to overlap the way most companies were doing it. There were exceptions like Love Gleason Publications with the Golden Age Daredevil and Silver Street Comics, but not many. But Superman and Batman were both huge hits for National. Superman started in Action Comics, and he would be one of five or six stories in that series. It was an anthology series, and a lot of those stories were shorter than eight pages, although Superman's stories were typically the full 16. The other guys would just get a couple eight-pagers instead. He was popular enough that he got his own title. Similar with Batman, he first appeared in Detective Comics 27, which came out in April of 1939, and eventually got his own series. Now, National and All-American started working together in some ways and trying to find ways to promote it, starting with National, because they had a comic tied in specifically to the World's Fair in 1940 and 1941 and later on. And that first issue of the World's Fair was World's Finest Comics. So they were taking their big stars and putting them all on the covers. So Superman and Batman first shared a cover in 1940 but inside their stories were completely independent. They were all set at the World's Fair as part of that promotion, but none of the characters met or interacted with each other. It was a big enough hit that they kept the World's Finest title going, and that came out initially on a quarterly basis when Superman had been up to six times a year, so there was a Superman and Batman story in almost every issue, but the Superman story and the Batman story never interacted. And it continued like that for years. The closest thing we had to an interaction was when National and All-American teamed up to put all of their characters in one book, with the proviso that they didn't have solo books yet. So because Superman and Batman had their own books, they were excluded. Green Lantern was included in the first three issues of this title, which was Justice Society of America. The JSA was the first intercompany crossover, but he only appeared in the first three issues because that's when the Alan Scott Green Lantern got his own title, and they separated and pulled him out. And things ran that way because characters who had their own titles were excluded. All they had in there was a little bit of lip service that said Superman and Batman were former members of the Justice Society, but they weren't active. So that's the first thing that sort of established that they were existing in the same area and had met each other. We didn't see that at any time during the stories. It wasn't until 1954 that Superman and Batman actually joined forces in the same story for a second time and started doing it on a regular basis. And again, that was in World's Finest issue 71 the comics industry was still trying to hang on to that $0.10 cover price. So the issue count had dropped from 64 to 48 to 32 pages. And because of publication technology, you really have to take it 16 pages at a time. So it was going to be virtually impossible to make the books any smaller than 32 pages. But the problem is that World's Finest was a showcase of all of DC's starring characters. And Batman and Superman were two of the three superheroes that really survived the crash with, you know, the Wortham Trials and all of that stuff. They didn't want to part with either of them, they were the big sellers, but they didn't want to part with anyone else either, so they had to find a way to jam them all into one book. And that's where the idea of having regular team-ups between Superman and Batman came from. It was solely a way to manage cutting the page count down from 48 to 32 pages. So Superman and Batman started teaming up on a monthly basis in the comics in 1954 after meeting for the first time in 1952. Now the radio show was a different story. We first see Batman and Superman, or at least hear them together, in Dr. Blythe's Confidence Gang, which originally aired from September 4th to September 21st of 1945. In Adam's show, those are episodes 351 to 363, if you want to go back and give them another listen. So this was a full seven years before they officially teamed up in the source material. And it's just so iconic that nowadays the first meeting between this pair is a staple of every DC reboot. So whether you're talking about Crisis on Infinite Earths from the 1980s, or Zero Hour, or Infinite Crisis, or the New 52, they will retell the story of their first meeting. In fact, the New 52 have told two different stories of their first meeting in less than three years. Joined with Wonder Woman, they are the big three. These are the icons of the DC Universe. And this radio program was the first time we ever saw them working together as a team. We get a little bit of that later in the Justice League and the Super Friends cartoons. The first hint of it in live action was in Batman and Robin when George Clooney's Batman says, this is why Superman works alone. And it won't be until Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice that we actually see them together. Now, as great as Batman is, and how nice the sales of DC of Detective Comics were when DC first became DC, Superman is still the cornerstone of the DC universe. And a lot of that is because of this radio show and the Fleischer Studios cartoons that were just able to reach out to all the markets and bring it all together. It's the producers of the radio show who launched the George Reeves TV series. That series wouldn't exist without the radio, they were just aiming to go to a new medium, and that's the way they did it. Sadly, Batman didn't get his own full-time radio show. He just had one episode that first aired and only aired in 1950. It was a pilot that didn't take off. So this is one area where Superman is clearly ruling the roost. Anyway, I think you've all been subjected to enough of my ramblings over the past eight weeks or so here. So once again, I'd like to thank Adam for the opportunity to come and pitch in and give him a hand when he needed it, and I look forward to hearing him when he returns. Don't forget to check out Adam's other podcasts, The Great Detectives of Old Time Radio and The War. And don't forget also to go and track down his written works, whether it's the Powerhouse series, any of his original detective novels, or any of that. Thank you for listening. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! Auto Parts